Good morning, I'm Melinda Carlson, and our reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation that, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not for forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The word of the Lord. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word. Help us to take it in, to receive it, to live by it. And Father, we need the help of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm living proof that if you hang around long enough, uh, Johnny will give you a job. 
which is good. Um, and I just would add to the introduction that I actually spend my days right now uh, teaching at Trinity Christian School, where I teach all the eighth graders New Testament. And uh, some of the upper school, Algebra 2. So if you need help with your algebra, you know where to come. I've been told that you can take a man out of the Marines, but you can't take the Marines out of the man. You heard that before? When someone gets married, their status and their identity changes. But while you can take a person out of the single state, sometimes it's hard to take the single state out of a person. And when someone turns to Christ, their status and identity changes also. But you can take a person out of the unredeemed state, but it may take time to take the unredeemed state out of the person. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus, the help of the Holy Spirit, and the encouragement of brothers and sisters to help us grow in Christ. Well, that's going to be part of the message as we look at Galatians 2 today. The story so far, let's go with that. Where did Johnny get us to last week? Paul, the most prominent young Jewish leader, has been converted by a direct encounter with Jesus. You read about that in Acts chapter 9. And then we don't really know what happened, but Paul spends much time at home in Tarsus preparing for whatever comes next. That unredeemed state is being dealt with. In Acts, the next thing we read is that Peter has a vision and then a meeting in which he witnesses Gentiles accepting the gospel. You read about that in Acts chapter 10. The next thing we read about is that there is persecution in Judea. Many of the followers of Jesus disperse with many heading to the major city of Antioch, which is in Syria. Here the church grows among Gentiles as well as Jews, and Barnabas says, well, we need Paul. So he goes to Tarsus to find Paul and to bring him to Antioch to teach. Tarsus is Paul's hometown. And uh, in Acts chapter 11, we read about that. And we read last week uh, in Galatians chapter 1, this amazing testimony. The churches in Judea learned, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he tried to destroy. Well, today, the story continues. There is a famine in Judea and an offering for the support of the believers there. Paul and Barnabas get it together in Antioch and take it to Jerusalem. Once again, we read about this in Acts chapter 11. It's worth pointing out that most places in the Roman Empire were probably wealthier than Judea. Judea was kind of a little backwater 
for the Romans. It was a place that caused them a lot of trouble, much more trouble than it was worth, really, when you compared with the all the activity, the economic activity that you could find in Antioch and Rome and also Ephesus and Corinth. These were the places where things were happening. But Judea was a problem. They had to deal with the Jews there, and it never quite worked out. Well, Paul takes the offering of the Christians to the Christians in Judea. And Paul meets the apostolic leaders there. He shares what he is teaching, and he receives their approval. And they agree a mission strategy. That's what we just read in Acts chapter 2 through 10 verses. Um, Paul says, I will go to the uncircumcised. Peter says, I will go, and I believe I've been sent to the circumcised. And they all agree we must remember the poor in our ministry. So, Paul heads back to um, Antioch, this big city, one of the, the third city of the Roman Empire. And things are developing well in Antioch. They follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of spreading the gospel. And if you read in Acts chapter 13 and 14, that's where we get this, this chapter of what's going on in the early church. So I hope I'm going to get a map. Here's the map. And uh, just you can see there Tarsus up in Cilicia. That's where Paul was. You can see uh, Antioch in Syria on the far right. That's that big city where the church really flourishes. And just off the map down below, you'd see Jerusalem and Judea. And the first missionary journey takes Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus. That's where Barnabas is from, we learn. And they preach, and we learn about preaching in Salamis and Paphos. And some people turn to Christ as a result of that. Then they cross the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea. They end up in, they go to Perga. And if you've ever seen the photos of the place, they're right in front as you approach from the sea. The mountains are huge. The Taurus mountains they have to cross. And they crossed those mountains and went into Galatia. And so uh, we then read about preaching in Antioch, in Pisidia. There were 13 cities called Antioch in the Roman Empire. And they all were founded around 300 BC by a particular Roman, a particular Seleucid general. Well, you don't need to worry about that. Just know that that's not Antioch in Syria. And then they head to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And this is South Galatia. Galatia extends much more towards the north. But that's where Paul and Barnabas uh, preach. And uh, they preach that Jesus is risen. And they encounter success among Jews and Gentiles. But they also encounter tremendous opposition. In fact, this starts Paul's uh, experience of mission he goes to a synagogue, he gets a hearing, he gets to speak to the, the, um, what they call the God-fearers, the, the people who are not Jews but who are attracted to the Jewish uh, vision of God. 
And that's where he found his greatest response. And as they are teaching about Jesus, they get tremendous opposition. And he was run out of town more than once in this, in this tour. Well, they get to the end of the road in Derby, and then they retrace their steps quietly at each place, meeting the, um, the, the, the believers, and it says they appointed elders in every city. And then they head back home. And so the point to make then is Galatia is not like Antioch and Ephesus and Corinth. It's really much more of a rural backwater. It's off the main track. And so the question is, how would these elders they've just been appointing, how would they be supported? And the answer is, with difficulty. They would have to be supported by the occasional letter, by a visit when someone could make it. But most of all, the mission of the early church was one of tremendous trust in the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God who they left in charge as they encouraged elders to take responsibility and to lead these congregations. Well, they return home directly to Antioch and report, and the church in Antioch is much encouraged. And it is probably at this point that Peter comes to visit Antioch. And this is what we read about in Galatians 2 and from verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul writes, I opposed him to his face. At first, things go well, but then trouble arises. And brothers and sisters, it arises of all places in the lunchroom or wherever they ate together. What is the problem? Well, let's uh, head to the, the problem. What is the problem? For centuries, faithful Jewish identity had been anchored in the Torah, the law, which they understood came from God via Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah for Jews regulated your worship and prayer, what you celebrated in terms of Sabbath and festivals, who you could marry, definitely no intermarriage with Gentiles, in fact, no close dealings with Gentiles, what you could eat, the food laws, and who you could eat with, basically Jewish people and many other things, all under the banner of the covenant of God. The law directed what you could wear. It directed how you dealt with disease in the community. It directed um, your, how you left your property to your family. Um, it describes how you should treat your children, how you should treat your servants how you're to harvest your fields, and so on. It covered all kinds of things. And this was all under the banner of the covenant of God, summed up by the sign of circumcision. A faithful Jew rejoiced in the Torah, 
which confirmed that he was part of God's chosen people, set apart for God, set apart by God. One of the questions that often got missed, however, was set apart, but for what? If you read the prophets of the Old Testament, they tried to remind the kings and the priests that God's people had been set aside to bless the world. Not to, as it were, break off from the world and hide away from the rest of the world. They sought to remind the nation what God wants for the rest of the world. And that was a problem. That message didn't really register with people. But now, Gentiles are believing in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. That's great, said the leaders at first. But then other voices, mainly in Jerusalem, but also in the synagogues where Paul and Barnabas had been preaching, began to say, hey, it's great that you believe, it's great that Jesus has brought you to the one true God. But now you must complete the process. Accept the Jewish law and practices. Get circumcised and you'll be one of us. When I was at Truro, we had a speaker from Jews for Jesus who said, have you ever thought that it's crazy that Jews for Jesus is a controversial organization. In the first century, Gentiles for Jesus was the controversial organization. There's the problem. But how did Paul notice the problem? You see, in the lunchroom, wherever they ate, Paul noticed that Peter was willing to eat with the Gentile believers in line with the vision that he himself had received, but that when some of the other voices arrived, he separated from them. And Barnabas did, and others did too. And Paul immediately names the issue. If you are living like a Gentile, Paul says to these Jewish leaders, in other words, freely setting aside those food laws because of the gospel, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Sounds like it may take time and courage to take the Jewish loyalism out of the man. So how did this problem affect Paul? Well, I mentioned those rural outposts in Galatia. You can imagine the difficulty these uh, rural outposts and their leaders had in other places, how they experienced with no regular contact with Paul and the wider church apart from the initial preaching and the occasional visit and the occasional letter, what happens when some visitors come along to their church 
and start attending and then begin to say, oh, you've been listening to Paul? We, we know what they're saying in Jerusalem. Take no notice of that troublemaker. He's a fake and his message is wrong. And we'll tell you what's really going on in Jerusalem today. What are they to do? What are they to think? So Paul is faced with two charges against him. The first is that he's not a true apostle. They say he's not one of the original disciples who went around with Jesus, nor was he an eyewitness to the resurrection. Also, his gospel, it didn't come from Peter. It's one he's made up. It doesn't match what the true disciples say, and it's causing a huge amount of trouble. And so Paul's defense, which occupies much of this letter, of the letter to the Galatians, and indeed others, is this. I was directly commissioned by, by Jesus, which we read, the other apostles have accepted. Peter and James and John, we read, said, yeah, we accept that, we understand that. Also, Paul says, I shared the message which I received directly from Jesus, I shared it with them, and they gave me the right hand of fellowship. Paul would add, it may be causing a great deal of trouble, but that's because your attachment to the law is greater than your understanding of the good news of salvation by faith in Jesus. And so we get to Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16, where Paul, as it were, reaches the summary of his argument. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you see how in this expanse of two verses, Paul says the same thing three times? By works of the law you won't be put right with God. That is a shock. The gospel of grace is really difficult to thoroughly plumb sometimes. You see, our human nature understands that we have to work for things. And uh, we expect, and the keeping the Jewish law led them to expect that you have to work, you have to achieve your salvation. And Paul is saying, look, Jews and Gentiles are actually the same. They all need to trust in Jesus. 
If we're saved by the same faith in the same Savior, we must not separate into different groups. This is a new thing God is doing, making a new people in Christ for the world. And we read in the first part of the reading today, when dealing with Titus in Jerusalem, he was not expected to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But false brothers crept in secretly. And Paul says, we did not yield for a moment that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. Now Paul says, for you, meaning the Galatians, for you, meaning those who are not Jews, you have the truth of the gospel preserved because it is solely, only through faith in Christ. Now this issue about circumcision and uncircumcision, what you're to do as a Jew or a Gentile, would not go away easily. In Acts chapter 15, we read that they hold a special church council meeting in Jerusalem about this, where they agree not to demand the practices of the law from Jesus following Gentiles. Although they do ask for care about food so that Jews and Gentiles will be able to eat together, they say to Gentile Christians, look, for the sake of eating together, uh, go with their food laws when you eat with them. That will help them, and then you'll all be together. So they say they ask for care about food, and they expect all believers to maintain sexual morality because they were living in the Roman Empire, which was a mess sexually. So the church has had a great big council. It's come to an agreement. It's issued a letter. And so that's that. Yeah, all is well. The problem's dealt with. And they would say in England, done and dusted. Yeah? No. No, not nearly. Paul was to deal with this issue through the rest of his life. Read, for instance, from Romans. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul has reached the amazing understanding that faith in Christ is the whole point and purpose of the law, to show people that they can't do it by themselves. The law won't get them there. It shows them they need God. It shows them they're sinners, and they need redemption, and the way to redemption is through faith. Paul says the law is upheld by us preaching faith. In Ephesians, 
We read, He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken in down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The two were Jew and Gentile. And here is one new man, the follower of Jesus. And when he says abolishing the law, he's talking about the law being fulfilled in Jesus. Here's his word from Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Circumcision. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Or what did he write in Colossians chapter 2? Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are the shadow of the things to come, but the reality belongs to Christ. Or what did he write to Timothy? There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And finally, to Titus, who had accompanied him on that very first visit to Jerusalem. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Paul, tell us what you really think especially those of the circumcision party. It sounds like they're having trouble taking the unredeemed state out of the person and indeed out of the people. Well, <clears throat> so what does all this mean for us? Christ Church Vienna is gospel-driven. Like Paul, we are called to spread the gospel and defend it. And I guess, be patient with people. Remember, the disciples themselves didn't get Jesus at first. So stick with them, teach and learn with grace and by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by alternatives to the gospel today, just as Paul was. We're going to have people with all kinds of ideas. And it looks like arguments continue in the church. Now, they fought about circumcision and uncircumcision. Thankfully, I haven't heard many debates about circumcision and uncircumcision in the church recently. Is that the case? Thankfully, all right? But we do argue. In the church, we argue about all sorts of things. We argue, for instance, about the exact meaning of the sacraments. We argue, for instance, about sexuality 
and how to treat people with caught up in the current confusion about sexuality. We argue about whether, where, and how women are in, involved in leadership. And all sorts of questions come around spiritual gifts and the authority of the Bible and the authority of the church. We argue about all sorts of things. And Paul's example was to be direct about issues that affect the gospel, issues that tend to divide us. Where he was more pastoral in other issues which did not divide us, where there were differences. If you read, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks and gives advice about uh, people who are considering whether to get married. He says, well, what do you think? Could or you couldn't. That's not a deep issue. Paul was direct in addressing the gospel issues and pastoral in less contentious issues. And what I'm encouraging us to remember from this is that our deepest identity comes from faith in Jesus and not from any other national, cultural, or religious source, however noble. Our gospel is a gospel of grace, not works. It's God's initiative, not ours. It's his work, not ours. And as we come to the Lord's table, we come empty, bringing only our need for forgiveness to remember the bread, to take the bread and the wine and remember that the cross, the body, and the blood given for us is the source of our forgiveness and our salvation. You know, there's an age-old issue about how to disentangle our culture from our preaching of the gospel. If you look at places around the world where Spanish missionaries have gone, there's a Spanish feel. If you look around the world where British missionaries have gone, there's a British feel. Uh, I've, I love the, the, the tales from India where the British built Gothic cathedrals. Not very Indian, although my understanding is that folks in the church in India have come to like them. Well, is that good? And what about American culture that has been spread abroad, not only from missionaries, but through all manner of um, cultural means? Be careful to distinguish what is cultural from the gospel. And it's great when we see the gospel shaping a culture. I pray that CCV will be, continue to be, gospel-driven. And we understand that this gospel is the gospel of grace that Paul saw right at the beginning and defended for us right at the beginning when all the other leaders, it seemed like, had been swept away. And the gospel of grace is something that opens up the message of God everyone in the whole world. We all stand together at the foot of the cross needing 
salvation through faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Last week, Johnny quoted Paul in Philippians. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Father, may that be our spirit and that be our approach to your good news. In Jesus' name.